Hello and welcome back to the Days Gone By podcast, a podcast that is part of the Scattered Abroad Network. My name is Jameson Stewart, and today's episode of Days Gone By is a sermon preached by Tom Holland. And in this sermon, his title, the, the topic of his lesson, is What Does the Name Jesus Really Mean? Tom Holland was preaching this sermon at the West Hobbs Street Church of Christ in Athens, Alabama. And so I hope that you will enjoy this episode of Days Gone By with Tom Holland. Through the providence of a great and gracious God in heaven, we are blessed tonight to assemble in the name of God's Son to praise God in song. And if that singing didn't bless your heart, I sincerely but humbly offer my sympathy. It just absolutely thrilled my soul. I want to thank Brent for really introducing this lesson for me tonight with all of those songs about the Lord Jesus Christ. I would echo what Bill has said about gratitude and appreciation for your presence. Jimmy Clark is a special person in my life. As I mentioned yesterday, Brother Winford Clark has uh, written his name in my heart with indelible ink. And all the good that God lets me do the rest of my life, and that's been going on for a few years now, uh, Brother Winford Clark shares in that. And Jimmy is a tremendous gospel preacher. I, I drove home last night just so excited and so enthused about being here. And I was trying to analyze on my way home why I was so elated and excited. One thing, getting to be with Bill and Ginger and, and hearing him mention that I had uh, been one of his teachers, it was just uh, knowing the great work they've been doing here, it just absolutely thrilled my soul. Seeing so many of you that I have known for a long, long time, I, I mean, just seeing you does me more good, I think, than a mega dose of Geritol. And we had a lot of preachers last night that I didn't even recognize at the time as they came out and, and then saw them. And just I thought, man, th this, is, this is about as good as it's going to get, I think. And uh, in your presence, I sincerely and humbly thank God in heaven that the good men who serve as the elders of this church have honored me with this invitation. I'm as grateful as I know how to be in my heart. If you leave here tonight without a greater appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ, I will have failed you. God's word will not have failed. I will have failed in the presentation of it. Or something would have been so dominant in your thinking that you couldn't really hear the word of the Lord. Because I am convinced that the word of God is living and powerful. Hebrews 4.12. I believe that. I've seen many manifestations of it. When uh, you and I start dealing with issues like this one, what does it really mean? to look into the name of Jesus. You say, everyone knows what that means. It means Savior or Deliverer. 
That's why the heavenly messenger informed Joseph that they should call the babe that Mary was to give birth to, call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, Matthew 1 and 21. But you see, that salvation looks two ways. There is a present salvation that we can experience right now. When Paul wrote to the saints at Ephesus in Ephesians 2 and verse 5, he said, By grace you have been saved. I mean, they were saved right then. But there is another dimension to salvation. The one the apostle Peter wrote about in 1 Peter 1 and 5 when he said, You're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. That eternal part of salvation hasn't even been fully revealed and will not be until Jesus comes. So when we think about what the name Jesus really means, we're thinking about the possibility of being saved right now, delivered from the power of sin through a redemption in the power of his blood. When we think about salvation, we are considering the possibility and the wonderful blessing of being reconciled to God where we find life, now with the hope of life forever. When we think about salvation, we're really thinking about an act of God whereby he pardons us, he justifies us. God pronounces us pardoned or forgiven. That's salvation. But I want us to appreciate tonight that although there is the human response that is required in order for us to be saved. I mentioned yesterday the old question that the jailer asked in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? To be saved is God's part. What must I do for God to work and save me? So. The danger here is that we overemphasize one of these aspects of salvation. Now, we have to keep emphasizing the necessity of obedience to Christ. As long as denominationalism is advocating a salvation by faith alone, although faith is a human activity, obviously, with the heart man believes, but as long as that's being done, it's going to be necessary to remind good and honest people that you have to obey the Lord. He saves those who obey him. But I don't want to leave the impression that my salvation is totally up to me. I'm a weak, frail human being. And if I imagine that my salvation is totally up to my human efforts, I'm not going to have any hope. I might have a wish that I could go to heaven, but the expectation and the anticipation which is down in the inner working of hope, I will never enjoy. I will commence to have hope when I realize what's involved in the name of Jesus. So let's try to keep these things in balance. I'm going to be going to Hebrews chapter 2 if you want to open your Bibles there. We're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Hebrews because how much those folks back in the first century needed to know what was involved in the name of Jesus. You see, some of these people evidently were giving up on the Lord. 
they were going back to their former religion of Judaism. And the burden of that inspired book of Hebrews is Jesus Christ is worthy of your faith. Don't give up on him. He's greater than the angels in heaven, Hebrews 1. He's a greater lawgiver than Moses, Hebrews 3. A greater rest provider than Joshua, Hebrews 4. A greater high priest than Aaron, the latter part of Hebrews 4 all the way through chapter 10. A lot said about Jesus being a high priest as we're going to be observing a little later. Now here in Hebrews chapter 2, these people and we are reminded of the possibility of seeing Jesus. Not seeing him as Stephen did when that mob of religious prejudiced people were killing Stephen and he said uh, he saw the heavens opened and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Not seeing him with visual perception, but seeing him, if you please, through the eye of faith having the eyes of our understanding enlightened. Somewhat like you may have had a teacher one time who would show you how to work a, a problem on the chalkboard before PowerPoint and all of that, and they'd work that problem and they'd say, do you see that? Yeah, I see it. I see all those little marks. No, no, no. Do you understand that? So when the writer in Hebrews 2.9 says, but we see Jesus, using a present tense, and we keep on seeing him, literally. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now where we're going to really be emphasizing in this lesson is this idea of Jesus being the captain of our salvation. He is the leader. He is the one that I have to trust to get me into heaven. See, the writer beautifully explains that Jesus came to take us to glory. Please don't ever forget that. The Son of God came to take us to glory. He is the captain of our salvation. He is the one to whom we look to save us from sin now and to get us into heaven forever. Now that word translated captain could back in the first century when they used that concept identify a man who went out and built a city and named it. It could identify a great leader who would lead folks forth in an undertaking. Well, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. I'm not the captain of my salvation. Now, I have to respond to my Lord. I have to have a submissive heart. But at no time should I ever imagine, well, I don't need the captain of my salvation. I, I can take care of this on my own. I know we live in an age when the accomplishments of people are absolutely fantastic. And I don't know of a better way to explain it. I've often wondered if, if our grandparents could be resurrected and just introduced to the things that we take for granted. It would probably just totally overwhelm them. But we have to be real careful in this age lest we start singing, Glory to man in the highest. We have to admit that there are some areas where we are very, very limited. Our dean at school, I was on the phone with him today, he's not feeling well, he has a cold. 
And he said, I read about a fella who had a cold and went to the doctor, and the doctor said it was very cold, and the doctor raised a window and said, now you go stand in front of that window for about 30 minutes. He said, man, what in the world are you talking about? He said, go stand in front of that window. He said, man, it, that's cold wind coming in there. He said, now if you'll do that and come down with pneumonia, I can doctor you. But this cold business, you know, I have a lot of trouble with that. But there are areas where we ought to acknowledge we're limited. And the one area where it is imperative that we acknowledge that we are limited is our salvation. So when we turn to the book of Hebrews and start looking at the captain of our salvation, I submit to you in light of this great book, and particularly chapter 2, that there are four things the captain of our salvation has done and is doing to get us into glory. First of all, his dying. And look at these two verses and, and how much this is emphasized. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for what? The suffering of death. Right now, he's crowned with glory and honor. But he suffered death. That he by the grace of God should taste, what? Death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. I, I'm talking about the great creator of the universe, the one whom Almighty God used as the agent of creation. For whom are all things and by whom are all things. In, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation complete or perfect through what? Suffering. I mean, you can't read those verses and miss it. Death, suffering. That old prophet Isaiah looked down the stream of time a little over 700 years, and the Holy Spirit said, this is what will happen to the Messiah. And so in Isaiah 53, he wrote about it. Lord, to whom... Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. You get that? Smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now that's an incredible observation, smitten of God and afflicted of God, don't you think? In what way could we possibly lay before Almighty God the charge of having smitten and afflicted his own son? Only in the sense that God let it happen. Have you ever wondered what was going on in heaven when all of that shameful thing was occurring out at Golgotha? I mean, when that mob of people were ridiculing the suffering Son of God, I'm, I'm talking about the suffering Son of God, the one who had been through the scourging, the one that had been slapped, the one that people had had the audacity to spit on, the Son of God 
to drive the nails through his hands and through his feet and to hang him up suspended between heaven and earth to suffer, to suffer a death that human language would be in poverty to adequately describe. God let it happen. God could have sent the armies of heaven and stopped the whole shameful procedure and rescued his son from that cross. And God didn't do it. Smitten of God and afflicted, suffering and dying. And you don't think God loves you? You don't think Jesus wants to get you into heaven? If not, I beseech you, think about it. He tasted death. He experienced the shame and the horror and the hurt of a type of death that was used on criminals. The sinless, innocent Son of God nailed to a cross of shame. Why? to become the captain of my salvation. See, if God is going to justify us, if a holy, just God is going to pronounce us pardoned, you're no longer guilty. I am pardoning you. How can a holy God do that and not wreck the whole moral universe? How could he not, in our justification, say, well, sin is not the tragedy. It really isn't. Well, sin is the tragedy. And if you want to know how much of a tragedy, I would just beseech you, by faith, march back across the centuries and look up on that cross and see, by faith, the Son of God hanging there, tasting death, experiencing death. Why? to get me into glory. We're talking about what the name of Jesus really means. So that's one thing he's done to get us into glory. It's his dying. Now here's the next thing, and that is his sanctifying. So if you keep reading there in Hebrews 2, both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he's not ashamed to call them Brethren, he does what now? He sanctifies. Why does he sanctify? To be the captain of our salvation. Why does he sanctify? To get us into glory. What does it mean to sanctify? Well, you all know it means to set apart, to consecrate, to dedicate. And as surely as that's the meaning of sanctification, set apart, consecrated to God, there is something from which we are sanctified. And that from which we are set apart is identified in your Bible as the world. And the world identifies the mass of humanity that is alienated from God and dominated by the devil. The world is verbally explained in Ephesians 2, the opening verses, when the apostle said, And you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and in sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world. Now I want to pause a minute to point out that the two words translated in your New Testament world are both found right there in Ephesians 2 and 2. 
That first word translated course is sometimes translated world, as in Romans 12, 1 and 2, when Paul said, Be not conformed to this world, literally this age. If your Bible has a marginal reference, it'll, it'll have the word age over there. So this mass of mankind, alienated from God and dominated by the devil, are walking according to a certain course. I mean, it's, it's characteristic of the age. Competent historians can look back on a given period and they can take materials from that period and they can pretty well tell you the philosophies and what was really going on in that period of time. If the Lord delays his coming, someday people will look back on the 21st century in the United States and they will tell you the basic philosophies like relativism and hedonism that were permeating thought and life in, in this particular age. Here were people who were walking according to the age of this world, this mass of humanity alienated from God. And, and he goes on to explain that not only were they walking according to the course of this world, he said you were really under the domination, and I'm paraphrasing this, of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the sons or children of disobedience. Now, any person today that's aware of, of what's going on in this society can tell you disobedience is for real. There are people who resent any kind of authority. If it's the authority of a judge, if it's the authority of an elder in God's church, if it's the authority of a parent in a home, there are people who resent any kind of authority. A principal at school, a teacher in a school. I mean, an authority figure resent any kind of authority. You know what that's characteristic of? The world. It's a spirit of this age. It was a spirit in the age of the first century disobedience. And then he says, you were by nature the children of wrath. Because you were walking a course according to the course of this world, you were thereby children of wrath. You were exposing yourself to the very wrath of Almighty God. Now I don't have time to really get into a discussion of how people are, if they are sensitive, can see the wrath of God today. Not that he's in heaven and, and he gets angry and flies off the handle and sees how many folks he can hurt. But it's a matter of people moving away from God. You can, you can read it explained in Romans chapter 1. People moving away from God and therefore moving away from any kind of absolute moral standard. And when that occurs, don't be surprised at man's inhumanity to man. Don't be surprised if a baby at Disney World is thrown into a toilet by its mother. Don't be surprised if two young men out in Colorado go to their high school and see how many of the fellow students and teachers they can kill. Just don't let that surprise you anymore. Because when people move away from God, what's going to control them? Their own passions? Or maybe somebody that just dominates them. They get in a political system where if, if they object, they're shot. But otherwise, what's going to control them? You were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's a dark picture, isn't it? It's accurate, and it is as accurate of this generation as it was in that generation. But now you keep reading, and here it's kind of like you're 30,000 feet in the air and you're caught in a storm, 
and, and the plane is, is falling and it's being blown that way and that way and, and you're buckled in as tightly as you can get and you're holding on for dear life and then all of a sudden you break out of that and the sun is shining up there and it's so peaceful and uh, it's just absolutely thrilling to your soul. So the sun's about to break out now in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, see the contrast? But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us or made us alive in Christ. And then in parenthesis, what we know a moment ago, for by grace you have been saved, literally, as the New King James renders it. By grace you have been saved. See that sunshine? Folks, we ought to be so glad that we've got a merciful God. We should be so grateful that we have a gracious God. And I just remind you, you, you know that God's mercy is when he does not give us what our sins deserve. And his grace is when he gives us what we never could earn or merit. That's the kind of God that let his son go through the ordeal of Golgotha so his son could get us into glory. Now when the Lord sanctifies us, when he sets us apart from that world that is condemned and headed to hell, when he sets us apart from that, we thereby become holy people. This might sound contradictory, but, but please listen to it carefully now. Sanctification is an event in your life and it's a process for your life. There is a moment when we are sanctified. Both he that sanctifieth, he sanctifies. Over in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, we find these words from the Lord. Lo, I come to do, the, to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he might establish the second. By the which will, we are sanctified. Literally, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been set apart from a condemned, hell-bound, devil-dominated world to be saints, to be holy people. But it's a challenge of a process to keep on being a saint. So the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, after saying, gird up the loins of your mind and hope to the end for the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be you holy in all conversation or manner of life. And then he quotes from that book of holiness in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, where you read that concept or synonym for it about 131 times, he quotes from that. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Be distinct. Be different. Now right here is where we really have a challenge on our hands. We live in a world, we live in a culture that is so strong and so deceptive and has so much power to deceive our minds, to seduce our souls, that to be holy, we just must have the Lord helping us. And if we'll let him, he will help us. He'll help us through such passages as we just noted from 1 Peter chapter 1. Through his word. Be holy. I'm holy. 
We, we find in 2 Corinthians 7 and 1 where Paul would say, Having these promises, dearly, dearly beloved, let's cleanse ourselves from all imperfections of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness. Bring it to maturity in the fear or respect of God. So all of these challenges from our Savior through his inspired apostles in the New Testament to live as saints, to be holy people, potentially the Lord is helping get us in the glory because heaven will not be populated by people who have a disobedient spirit. Heaven will not be populated by children of wrath. Heaven will not be populated by people who have been dominated through this existence on earth by the devil. Be holy, God says, through his word. I'm holy. Now, lest someone not really appreciate it, I want to take you to 1 Corinthians 1, 1 and 2. To be real sure, we're all in the place where you find the saints of God. Let no one misunderstand. So when Paul introduced this letter, he said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call on the name of our Lord, both theirs and ours. Now, to whom did he write that? Well, Holland, I have news for you. I believe that you can be saved without ever being in the church. If you'll just be a good neighbor, a good citizen, be honest, treat folks right. Perhaps it'd be good to be benevolent, you know, really have a caring, compassionate heart. But man, you can be just as good a person out of the church as you can be in the church. You believe that? Where do you find saints? Out in the world? That's incredible. He says you find saints among the called out ones. Well, what's the meaning of the word translated church? The called out. Out of what? Out of the world. So if I am expecting Jesus to get me into glory, I need to respect his church. And I need to be real sure that I so identify with my Lord as a part of his body, the church. But one thing he's doing to get me into glory is sanctifying me. Now here's the third thing, identifying with me. So you go back to Hebrews 2, and after the writer had said, both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name among my brethren, and in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Quoting from Psalm 22, that great messianic psalm, and it's quoted right here in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. And then he says, uh, uh, goes on to say, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me. And then, for as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself also likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. I want to pause and ask you to watch this one real carefully now. In all things it behooved him to be, made, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and a faithful 
high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation, or some translations say propitiation, for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he's able to succor them who are tempted. Now what has Jesus done for us? He's identified with us. I mean, my Savior didn't come to this earth like an Eastern guru to sit out on a mountain in Oregon and dispense great philosophy of life. No, he came where we live. He came in a body like we have. He came in a body that needed rest. He came in a body that needed food. He came in a body whereby the devil could tempt him. And you've read the account, I'm sure, in Matthew 4, when the devil had the audacity to tempt the Son of the living God. But Jesus was in that body when that temptation came to him. I find great comfort in this, that my Savior, the one that I'm depending on to get me into heaven, has been here, and he knows really what it's like. He knows the trials. He knows the temptations. He knows the challenges. And that's why he can be merciful. I was talking to a dear brother back a few weeks ago who was kind of struggling with whether or not he could go to heaven. So far as I know, a prince of a man. And in my effort to encourage him, I reminded him of something that the Apostle Peter said that I noted with you just a moment ago from 1 Peter 1, and also something Jude said as he closed that little epistle. Peter says, you, you gird up the loins of your mind and hope to the end for what? The grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when Jude closed that little book, he said, Keep yourselves in the love of God, but you look for the mercy of the Lord to eternal life. Grace and mercy. That's what I'm looking for. And I'm looking for Jesus to bring me that when he comes. His grace, his mercy. So when I think about him identifying with us, I promise you, he can be merciful. And when we get down in the fourth place in a minute to notice how he is supplying our spiritual needs, this is going to be a part of it. But right now, I just want to assure us, he knows our situation. He was tempted in all points like as we are. That's Hebrews 4, right? We have this great high priest who has passed into the heavens and a very specific identification there. Jesus, the Son of God. He says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched, and I love that word, which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See that? Tempted in all points like as we are. I was doing a telecast with a brother several years ago. It was one of these where we decided we'd just sit and talk and let the audience kind of listen in. We were on this passage, and, and this brother said, you know, a man told me one time, he said, that passage is not so. 
He said, my wife left me. Jesus wasn't even married. There's no way that he could have been tempted the way I'm tempted. And he said, I told the fellow, well, Jesus had a trusted apostle that walked out on him. He knows something about the hurt. Judas betrayed him. Uh, that, that must have been extremely hurtful to the Son of God. But the point is, when you are struggling with temptation, just remember, the Lord struggled with temptation. And when you are dealing with overwhelming, heartbreaking trials, you are not alone. The Lord has dealt with heartbreaking experiences. And so come boldly to the throne of grace through him. There's mercy up there, and there's grace. I want to ask all of God's people in this audience a very personal question, but we're not going to embarrass anyone. You don't have to raise your hand or do anything to embarrass you. Just please let us all answer it in our hearts. Have you ever needed God's mercy as a child of God? Have you ever needed His grace as a child of God? Have you had any difficulties in life? Have you ever been like a man who stood in my office door one day, professional man, an elder in a congregation? And he said, Tom, I've stumbled real hard. I said, come on in. Come on in, have, have a seat. You're in understanding company in here. Don't we all at times stumble? Don't we all need somebody to kindly pick us up and that's one of the reasons for God to, to put the saved into a congregation you know that song that we sang yesterday how sweet how heavenly is the sight when those that love the Lord and one another's feast delight and so fulfill his word when each can feel his brother's sign with him bear part when sorrow flows from eye to eye and joy from heart to heart I mean that, that brotherhood of God's people offers potential strength to live for the Lord. That's one reason we come together in, a, in an assembly. I know you've heard many times Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembly. I want to back up one verse. Let us consider one another to provoke or literally to stimulate to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We, we come together to do what? To stimulate one another, to encourage each other, to build each other up in the most holy faith. Singing can build you up in the most holy faith. The proclamation of the Word of God can strengthen your soul. It's food for your spirit. It's meat and milk, to use those two metaphors in Hebrews 5, 12, and 13. And then on the Lord's Day, this tremendous opportunity to have our minds taken right back to the cross and to remember that God really loves us. The Son of God literally, absolutely, actually died for us. And He's coming again one day to take us forever to the presence of God and to be in a land fairer than day for which we sigh and for which we pray. I tell you, when we understand the potential power to strengthen our souls in coming together to worship God, then we understand Hebrews 10.25. Don't forsake it. Don't turn away from it. And as surely as you start forsaking it, 
You are on the road to leaving Jesus as the one to get you into heaven. What's he done to get us into heaven? Well, there's the dying and the sanctifying and the identifying. And now we come down to the supplying. I'm happy to tell you tonight that I have a Savior that potentially satisfies all our spiritual needs. Every one. Every one. So let's get specific on that. Look at that word, propitiation. Some translations say it's reconciliation, but it's the same word that you find in 1 John 2, 1 and 2 when it talks about he is the propitiation for our sins. Back a few years ago, I was asked to come down to Freed Hardeman and lecture on propitiation. And tell you the truth about it, I never really seriously studied that idea. But I started studying it, obviously, to go down and present that material. And when I got into it, ah, oh, you talk about something that thrilled my soul. When uh, they brought those 70 scholars from Jerusalem down to Alexandria about 285 B.C. to take the Hebrew Old Testament Scripture and to translate that into the more popular language of that day, the Greek language. When those translators of that which they call the Septuagint translation, you, you can get a, we have a copy in our library at the School of Preaching, the Septuagint translation. Some of you may have a copy of that. But... When they, when they came to use a word to translate that mercy seat, mercy seat. Now, now remember, your Old Testament history, they first had the tabernacle, which was a type of portable temple, with two basic compartments, not counting the outer court. They had the holy place and the most holy place. And in that most holy place, and they were separated by a big, thick veil, if you remember, no one was allowed in the most holy place, with one exception, and that was the high priest. But he could only go once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And what would happen, they would bring to him animals. And he'd take the blood of an animal and he'd go inside that big thick veil into that most holy place and sprinkle the blood of that animal before that mercy seat to make an atonement for his sins. And the word atonement literally means a covering over, to cover over his sins from the sight of God. You say, I didn't think that would happen until Jesus came and died. You're right. It was an atonement in anticipation uh, of the Lamb of God. But it was an atonement. Then after he had made that atonement for his own sins, he would come out and they would have brought to him, if you recall, the two goats and he would cast lots and whichever goat became recipient for the lot to be sacrificed, its blood would be taken by the high priest inside the big thick veil again and sprinkled before the mercy seat to make an atonement for the sins of the people. And then he would come out and place his hands over the head of the live goat, the Azazel, the removal goat, pronounce on him all the sins of the people, and one would lead that goat out into the wilderness, and he would be typically bearing away the sins. Next time you read Hebrews 9, the closing part, please remember that. The writer says, but it's a point unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Back to the mercy seat. When those translators came to select a word to identify that mercy seat, 
The very word that they chose is the one that comes out in your New Testament, propitiation. When I learned that, that little hymn that I had sung many times and I thought I really appreciated, from every stormy wind that blows, from every swelling tide of woes, there is a calm and sure retreat is found beneath the mercy seat. There, there on eagles' wings we soar, and sin and sense seem all no more, and heaven comes down our souls to meet, and glory crowns the mercy seat. As a child of God, I have a mercy seat, and my mercy seat is my Savior who's trying to get me into glory. So the blood of the Lamb that cleansed my soul from every stain of sin when I was baptized into his death is the same cleansing blood that blesses my heart and life as I walk in the light of the truth of God. I've got a mercy seat. You see, one of the things Jesus is supplying is a mercy seat for me. Now, that's my hope. Don't you remember that song Brent led us to sing yesterday, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? My mercy seat. And there's something else that Jesus is supplying for me, my heavenly representatives. So much of what you read in Hebrews starting in the latter part of chapter 4, as I mentioned all the way through chapter 10, has to do with Jesus being a high priest, not after the order of Aaron. He couldn't even qualify. He didn't come from that tribe. The priests from the tribe of Levi were the Old Testament priests. Our Lord sprang from the tribe of Judah, so the Hebrews writer assures us. He says, of which Moses spake nothing in the law. Jesus couldn't qualify to be an Aaronic priest or after that order. He's not even after that. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek who was not only a priest but also king of Salem or later Jerusalem or Jerusalem. He was a king and he was a priest. My Lord is a king, king of kings, and he is the high priest of all high priests because he's mine. Now I'm going to lay on you Hebrews 7:25. This is a great encouraging passage. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He does what? Just like that high priest would make intercession for those people. My Lord is my intercessor. He's the one who gets me to the throne of God. I would not dare imagine that I could approach the throne of God without my Savior taking me there giving me that audience with Almighty God. And as my high priest, he ever represents me before the throne of God. Now, I will confess to you that when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. So far as a complete, adequate sacrifice for sin, it was finished. So far as the authority of that old Levitical system, it was finished. But the work of my Lord was not finished. 
Because I turn to Hebrews 9, 24, and I read that he entered not into tabernacles made with hands, but into heaven itself. Now please watch this. Into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. See that? To appear in the presence of God for us. My Savior went back to glory, and He is now glorified by the right hand of the majesty on high and working there to get me into glory. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Tis so sweet because He's doing what He can do to get us into glory. Don't you love a Lord like that? Can you appreciate a Savior like that? Can you let the devil keep on depriving you of the hope, the forgiveness, the sense of forgiveness and peace? Are you going to let the devil keep on depriving you from that? If I may appropriate a statement of the Apostle Paul, God forbid it! I mean, here is Jesus Christ trying to get you into glory and the devil trying to get you into hell. Of all the incredible things for people to let the devil take them to hell. When the Son of God has died on the cross to take us to heaven. When the Son of God is now by the right hand of majesty on high representing us and pleading our cause before the throne of God in heaven because He wants us to be in heaven. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. And I promise you tonight, if you would just remember what he's done to get us into glory, dying, sanctifying, identifying, and supplying all of our spiritual needs, there will well up within our souls a profound gratitude and we will be eager to obey that Savior. And we will rejoice to get to live for Him. And we will be honored to wear His name. To say, I'm a Christian. I belong to the one who came from glory that's taking me to glory. And so that's why we sing all these songs of confidence, you know? Blessed assurance. And one we sang yesterday, when we all get to heaven. All of those songs... That's a beautiful message we're singing right there. Confidence, assurance. Why? Because, well, I'm, I'm so good. I'm so smart. I'm so good. I, I'm just going to walk up there the last great day, and I'm going to tell God, I've worked me out of way to get up here. I, ne I never did obey your son. See, I, I felt like you could just be a good person and never in the church, you understand? And, and so I'm just going to explain that all to God. No. Your hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. My hope is the Son of God. But there he is for us, trying to get us into glory. Now, finally, I need to remind you of Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Now, I have to obey my Lord. I have to submit to him. I have to live for him. And for me to imagine, well... You know, he's my Savior, so I'm, I'm just trusting him to get me into heaven, and so I, I'm, I'm not going to do anything. That would be a terrible 
potentially eternal tragic mistake. Obey him. Live for him. And I'll make you a promise based on the word of God. As surely as you do, you're going to live with him forever and forever. And I'm not so sure but that when we gather around the throne, there'll be a lot of praise given to the Son of God for getting us into heaven. I know I sure want to praise him. I know I sure want to thank him because without him, I am lost and ruined and doomed and damned. But with him as my savior, I'm redeemed, I'm justified, I'm forgiven, and I'm bound for the promised land. Just want to make an appeal to those of you who maybe up to this point have never trusted the Lord with your soul. I mean, your soul is in good hands when you trust Jesus Christ. And maybe you didn't come to this assembly tonight with any idea that this night in Athens, Alabama, God would change your life and your destiny through the power of the gospel, the good news about his son. But if you'd lay down your prejudice, if you'd push aside your indifference, whatever that keeps you from claiming Jesus as your savior, uh, you could walk down one of these aisles when Brent starts leading us in this great old exhortation to you. You could sweeten your lips with the loving name of the precious son, the living God. And Bill could baptize you tonight into his death. And you could be raised to walk in a new life with Jesus as your Savior taking you to the promised land. If you need to come back and renew your determination to live again for him, we plead for your soul. We sing to encourage. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.